you know, we saw step one, as soon as you diversify the check writer, you diversify that ecosystem and, and where the money goes. And, and we felt by coming together, we could accelerate some of that. Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the Director of Marketing at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Kelly and Joanna, the general partners at F7 Ventures, a firm that's focused on the future of work and families, mental and physical health, and connected communities. They more recently raised a $50 million fund in 2022, had started the company in 2019, investing as a group with seven female operators and leaders with over 20 years of experience in the fastest growing technology companies in Silicon Valley. During their 10 years at Facebook, Google, Yahoo, and beyond, they managed and developed thousands of people across dozens of teams around the world, growing managed revenue from zero to more than $15 billion. They scaled user growth to over a billion, launched over 30 new products globally, and led teams across almost every organizational discipline. And we cover a lot in this episode. Let's dive in. Kelly and Joanna, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, having for having us. Yes, thank you for coming on the show and congrats on the $50 million fund, which is amazing. Love to see it. So exciting. <laughs> thank you. We are excited as well. Fundraising is a journey for founders and investors raising <laughs> a fund. So it's uh, yes. an exciting milestone for us. <laughs> Both sides, definitely. And I read, I read through. I was looking back in the archives. Uh, March sixth, twenty nineteen, you posted a Medium article, and you had said this is for the launch of F Seven Ventures. You had said the goals are there. You're like four different things: increase the number of women on the cap table, leverage capital, connection, and community to drive opportunities and success for inspirational founders, make over fifty percent investments in female founders, and drive outsized returns. And that was three years ago. You've come a long way since it looks like and made a number of investments, but let's go back to the beginning here. Why start F7 in the first place? I'm curious. Yes, good question. And we kind of have two chapters of F7. Um, and when F7 started, it wasn't clear that we were going to go build an, you know, a firm and an institutional fund. We really started as um, essentially an angel fund. We formed a fund, um, the seven of us, um, and with our own capital, and we made 19 investments out of that fund. But as you point out, uh, there were a couple motivations. I mean, first of all, the, the seven of us have worked together at Facebook um, just to, and uh, have been operators for a really long time, from early stage startups to fan companies. We really came together with two goals in mind. One was to take these many lessons you get when you're building um, and scaling at the size and the pace of a Facebook and translate that in a way that could be really value add for early stage founders and help founders build their own foundations to drive outside scale. And, and that was motivation one and motivation two, as you're describing, um, and, you know, some of us were angel investing and institutional investing. We, you know, became acutely aware of the inequities in the ecosystem, both in funders and, of course, dollars going to underrepresented founders. And, you know, we saw step one, as soon as you diversify the check writer, you diversify that ecosystem and, and where the money goes. And, and we felt by coming together, we could accelerate some of that. And so uh, all that said, again, 19 investments, our own capital. You know, really learned that some of this does make a difference, that we love the work. And then Joanna and I made the very considered decision to take the next step about a year and a half ago, <laughs> leave our operating careers behind and um, really set out to build a multi-generational firm. Um, and as you mentioned, raise our first institutional fund. And, and that's what we closed 
um, uh, I guess in April, we closed our $50 million fund. And again, you're really on that thesis of um, again, diversifying the ecosystem and um, you know, really helping founders execute. The transition you mentioned a year and a half ago, you and Joanna going through to like, okay, let's let's institutionalize this. Let's go a bit bigger in terms of capital amount. Take me through that decision for you too, how you got to that point, because I know our people listening have gone this angel route, done angel investing. It is different than raising a fund. I'm curious as to how you got to that point and the decision to then uh, raise an institutional fund. Yeah, I think the the first thing to to speak of is like really, you know, our partnership. I mean, we spent, you know, our 15 to 20 year careers like working with different people. And like when you land on finding somebody that you really feel like you can partner with, like go all in and do something right. Um, and so uh, we decided to build this um, uh, probably for really similar reasons. But for me, it was, you know, um, having been for you know five years at, at, a, at a COO of startups, like really seeing like a lot of the sort of like um, priorities that are uh, uh, that that founders and and execs choose from an early stage, like and and at no fault of their own, it's like the market market makes this right, like growth at all costs or like hiring for labels and and things like that, and and realize you know there's a lot of things that we can do to help founders see around corners way earlier and actually help bring execution to the table. So instead of working at a company where it's really an end of one, like, why don't we help 45 plus other companies do this with our first fund? Um, um, why don't we, and also capitalize them so that they have the opportunity to, to excel? Um, so really, that's when, you know, Kelly and I uh, when we saw this work with the 19 companies that we worked with, um, when we, you know, uh, saw what those founder relationships looked like, the trust that we'd built, you know, um, we really wanted to double down on this and and leave our operating career. So that so that was a, you know, that was a, it was a no brainer um, at that stage uh, when you know the opportunity to partner with somebody like Kelly and also to to work with these like founders that are going to be building great companies. It's um, uh, you know, so far, so far, so good. It's, it's been, it's been a good, it's been a good run. With that too, with this fund, with 50, 50 million fund, I read about you know, some of the investors like, like SoftBank, JP Morgan, Insight Partners, you have like Justin Kahn, worked with previously Atrium, uh, Paris Hilton, Espresso Capital. There's a lot of different ones on there. Just take me through how you thought through the fundraise, raising capital for this, because there's a lot to think about with this. I'm curious on just what that process was like for you. Yes, I, mean, I would lead with fundraising is not easy. I think you make a really important point that, um, you know, if you want to support founders and, and or invest, there are a lot of different ways to do it. Um, and, you know, the good news is there are a lot of different ways to do it. And so people, um, people who are thinking about that should really think about like what parts of this whole process um, they really like to do and enjoy. But, you know, for us, from a fundraising perspective, I mean, we did it brick by brick. We were um, operators turned investors. Um, we did, did not spin out from a larger fund. We did not have an anchor. And so this was truly one step at a time. I mean, tactically, how we approached that, you know, may be no surprise, you know, our first set of commitments were those individuals that we had worked with that know us well, that know our work product well, and 
um, and we take this very seriously, like have that belief and commitment to us. And the first close of our fund and really half of our fund, you know, we're really individuals. Um, and we're so grateful um, for those individuals that got us to that point. Um, from there, we then turned our attention to more institutional capital and some of those names you mentioned from um, JP Morgan, SoftBank, Anthemus, Insight, et cetera, um, uh, Virtus, who I'd mentioned. Um, and so we really set our sights on trying to bring in some of that, that longstanding institutional capital for the second part of our raise. Um, and all that said, you know, we're, you know, we're really thankful to have all of those individuals at the table. Um, I actually call fundraising exposure therapy, um, because if I had a problem with rejection, I no longer have a problem with rejection <laughs> and, or I just recover from it much faster, yep. but. <laughs> you know, similar to early stage founders, it's very personal when you don't have this huge track record and data to point to, like you're getting it. It's very vulnerable. You're getting in front of people and saying, like, do you believe in us and this? Do you believe that we can do what we're, we're going to say that we can do? And um, maybe not everyone did for various reasons, but um, a, a large group of, you know, you know, we're really grateful for like all of these people that did and that have, um, you know, made that investment and commitment to us. And we're really thrilled to have them as partners. Diving a little bit deeper on that. So what do you think it was that got them to commit? Because obviously, the, you know, people, for those who don't know, LPs have many options. Typically, they're looking at different different funds. And especially if you're an early emerging manager, it's challenging, like you mentioned, without the track record and everything. What was it about F7 that people were like, yes, I want to invest in F7 because you're doing XYZ things. This is what you're doing. Like, I'm curious about that side of things. I think it was all over the board, right? I think the initial slate of investors that were individuals had worked with us before. And so it was that that belief in us. Um, and then as we got to the institutional partners, you know, it was it was really like, did they buy the thesis that former operators can really make a difference in winning a deal in the company's trajectory? Um, and they have to they have the answer to that question has to be yes in order for them to to invest in a, in a first time fund that was um, having this as, as our differentiation. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think a, a lot of it was that a lot of it was also sort of that, like, you know, Facebook sort of DNA. Right. As much as Facebook is in the news or Meta is in the news now, like. I think one thing that has been really respected um, is the way Facebook executed and the way they operated. Um, uh, you know, while there were many other social networks at the time, right? Um, and so yeah. um, I think it's really that piece as well, like that that proven track record um, on the operating side, the ability to win the deals as a result and the ability to actually, you know, make an impact um, once we're on the inside. Uh, but yeah, I think that that was probably it. I love that you bring that up, uh, ability to win deals as well, because that's a huge part of anything if, as you're an investor. Like, okay, you can get access to deals maybe. Are you winning them? Are you be able to put what you want in those deals? Are you able, if you're leading, can you lead these deals? There's so much more depth to it as you kind of get in this industry a bit more. And one thing I just want to take a step back from, I mentioned in another podcast about like the vision, the mission, the values when you started F7, you two like talking about that and everything. How did that go? How did you kind of figure all of that out? Even in like the very beginning around like, what the vision and mission values would be. And I'm, obviously there's a lot of alignment there, but I'm just curious of that process for others who are, you know, may end up working with someone else as well, starting a fund, even launching a company. This is very important. How'd that go for you two? You know, overall F7. 
Um, I mean, we started with that. Like, what is it we want to build? Why do we want to build it? We knew we wanted to partner. Like, why are we doing this? And and like, you know, Kelly and I are incredibly different people and we complement each other really well, but we have the same values. And so we started from there. Like, what is it? What is it that we want to see in the world and, and in people that we invest in? Our values are, you know, empathy, humility, integrity, work ethic. And we want to invest in things that are useful to other human beings, right? We have this notion of human operations, ideas, products, tools that help human beings become better, like more productive, healthier, more effective. Um, and that's what we decided we wanted to invest in from day one. And so I think it really shaped, you know, how we how we thought about the world, how we operate, what we bring to the table, what the cri- the criteria that we use, and then the way we engage with founders as well. And I would say, you know, it's it's actually funny. It's like we we are on our own founder journey, if you will. We just um, yep. we founded a venture firm, um, but it's like similar advice that we would give to founders and co-founders is to, to keep having those conversations. And we actually continually kind of check in with one another to be like, are are we staying the course? Is this are are we you know doing what we said we wanted to do in terms of our overall mission? What activities are we doing that are maybe not contributing to the mission? Do we need to reset or recalibrate? And I think it's a constant exercise. I mean, and that's where I'm also, I think, thankful for you know our operating backgrounds that have also given us some of those tools and experiences to do that in a company environment because we we very much do that now and um you know and I, what I, I think and I hope you know makes us really strong partners to one another and also you know helps us continue to refine our activities when time is scarce as a small fund um and and, and make sure we're continuing to like build the future that we want to build and um you know for us you know that's that really propels us forward to like build something different, um, to build something material in the world. Um, and, and, and that was a big part of our decision-making when deciding to really take the step from um, F7B1 to F7B2. Yeah, progression of that. And Joanna, one thing you said, going back to what you said, you and Kelly are very different. <laughs> like, explain explain what you mean, because I know there's founders that are like, is this the right fit for us? Like foundationally, I think so, but we're very different people. Just like take me through that. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I'd say very different, but with the same values. I think that piece is super important. If you don't have the same values from the outset or you don't have the same like, you know, goal um, with what you're doing, then then it all falls apart, even if you're completely complementary. Um, I think we're different from a skill set perspective. Right. So my um, skill set is more operational product um, and hers is more go to market. Um, and so I think we approach uh, scenarios or issues that founders come to us completely differently, um, which really helps. I think um, our personalities are also really different. I'm more like, you know, a bull in a china shop and Kelly is able to walk into a room and, uh, you know, make everybody smile. And and uh, and we're different in that way. And, and, it's, and it works really well. And so the way that manifests, we try to like join um, calls with founders together because we, you know, we like to have that dynamic play out. So founders have it from all different angles and then can make their own decisions. Um, you know, so we're not, you know, we're not prescriptive. We're not trying to push our perspective on, on, on folks. And so, but, but that having both of those perspectives, I think is really important. Um, and so, and so that's what I mean when I say, when I say we're different, um, both from a personality and from a skill set perspective and, and it actually really helps. We actually disagree a lot um, on a whole bunch of things. And we're, we're probably talking, you know, 
uh, I don't think there's like five minutes in a day where we're not like messaging or talking with one another. Um, and it's, and we're debating these things constantly. And part of our investment decision, we, we both have to actually agree to get to, we have to, to agree to get to that, um, uh, to get to a yes. And so mm. that's where things get really interesting um, as we're debating, you know, the companies that we're about to invest in and doing the diligence and the way we interpret the diligence and, and things like that. But um, uh, it's good because I think it makes us, it makes us a lot better. I get super excited about it every time because it just, it feels like it does make us better, makes better decisions. We've also had some hilarious moments where we've gotten off a call and my interpretation of the call was one thing and Joanna's was another. And I was like, that's fascinating that you had a completely <laughs> different interpretation of that conversation. Um, so I feel like there's, you know, there's so much, um, there's so many gifts in it and uh, it's um, it's been fantastic. I want to dive into something that you mentioned, you touched on a little bit earlier, but your investment thesis in terms of future work, mental, physical health, and connected communities. Take me through why why that focus, just make sure I got that right, but why that focus, how you got to that, and what the kind of uh, more details on that, what that looks like for founders listening and curious if they fit that potentially. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, when we started out, again, as our kind of angel fund, if you will, very much a generalist fund, we had seven people around the table, we wanted yeah. everyone to have the freedom to bring whatever it is that was interesting to the table. Um, that said, you know, we learned a couple of things through that, you know, we found ourselves gravitating towards, you know, first of all, generally mission driven companies, and, you know, not just because that's good for the world, but also because many founders have the grit and perseverance to go through hard times when they're really driven by this mission bigger than themselves. Um, but the other component is that, you know, we obviously were sort of going through a global pandemic, you know, really shaped our view of the world. And a key learning at a, a Facebook at that time was really watching where do you see dramatic behavioral change? And of course, during the Facebook years, that was the mobile phone. And I think as we were going through a global pandemic, we're seeing massive behavioral change in how we work, how and where we work, um, how we where we live, how we form community was changing really dramatically, um, and then also how we think about access to healthcare and also consumer control, um, the destigmatization of mental health, and so all of these really dramatic behavioral shifts has really informed like where we want to focus in our F7 Fund One, and that informs the the three sectors that you talked about. So there's still relatively broad, but you know, we really do believe um, you know, because of that behavioral change, that's where we're going to see really significant innovation in those spaces. Um, and then the last thing I would add is you know, with that, we also need you know, more than ever before this diverse set of voices and perspectives and lived experience to build the solutions that um, you know, all different target markets and segments need across all of those solutions. And so that you know, really fuels our focus areas. With that too, with, with, with the companies you're looking at, founders are looking at, you mentioned a little bit of you're both on the calls. And I don't know if this is every call necessarily, but you're on at least some calls with the founders together. What is that process like in terms of evaluating founders for your, your team? Just take us through more of that. And then also after an investment, what that looks like. I heard some, some things on different podcasts from that looks like I'm curious uh, more around like this whole process you run in terms of F7. Yeah. Um, and the process is involved. I mean, from, from the get-go, we've like, you know, we, we have our investment memo, we do our diligence, and then we, we figure it out, like, you know, at the pre-seed stage, the founder might pivot, you know, a dozen times, like have <laughs> very varying business models. And so 
we look for four things that really allow founders to to execute well, right? Um, uh, with the with the model that they're pursuing, and the first is. Does the founder have a superpower? Are they top 1% of something? Um, now, Kelly and I have both interviewed like hundreds, maybe even thousands of people. And so we we kind of like try to, we try to spot that. And what they say they're best at, are they like top 1% in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing we look for is, um, is lived experience. So um, uh, when somebody's been through the problem that they're trying to solve, they tend to have a lot more like hustle and drive and just like, natural passion for it versus something that's just well researched right um so we look for that we also look for early product obsession we call this like a cult like obsession with a product so you know you've been you you've hustled you've built a product you have an mvp it's out in the market um you test you're testing it maybe with like 20 people and they're all like so obsessed with it um so this is like that that's the kind of thing we're looking for not necessarily like wild growth yet obviously at the stage but that sort of um uh cult like loyalty and then the last thing is this um you know obviously everyone's looking at big markets but this is a really unique wedge into that big market is this something that you know um that's been a gap folks have missed um and then combined with those three other table stakes that we look for um uh, you know, we think that this makes for a pretty, a pretty interesting deal. So, so that we call that, our, you know, our table stakes. And then from there, um, you know, the process is we, you know, we do it a lot more diligence along each of those. So whether that's like the references and back channels, uh, looking at the products they've built in the past, looking at um, a diligence on the market, um, a diligence on the competitors and things like that. Um, but that it all starts from those four table stakes. From that then too. So going to that's what you look for. And then finally, you find a great founder, great team, you invest in this team. You have all this operational background and experience from scaling companies. What does it look like after the investment then in terms of bringing that to founders, how that kind of goes afterwards? I'm curious about that too. Yeah, I would say on this, this is what we're maniacally focused on. I would say it's also what keeps me up at night. Are we are we doing enough? Are we delivering enough value? What else can we be doing? Um, it's Joanna and I talk about it all the time. Um, but I think today it takes on a few different forms. I mean, one, we look to be ultra accessible. And I know that sounds very basic. But step one is we've made an investment. We have a WhatsApp channel with those founders. They're like basically contact us 24-7. Um, you know, I think there's sort of the you know, the, some of the reasons I think people choose us to invest is around this trust and accessibility. So even in the first call with the founder, we make the point of, like, we want to be the call you make when you're having, quite frankly, like the oh shit moment. I don't know who else to yep. call. Like we want to be that partner. Think about us as on the same side of the table. Maybe you don't even know what the question is. We've had founders say like, can you look at this data with me? Like, I, I'm not sure what patterns I'm looking for. We're like, great. Like, let's look at it together. Um, so we really look to be that kind of partner um, where we don't. And I would also say we really also approach that as a coach. We're not looking to come in and operate your business. Um, we're looking yeah. to be a partner, ask thoughtful questions, hopefully help, you know, be a resource that helps you arrive at the right decision for you and the right decision for the business. Um, outside of that, I think we're, you know, we're not directly meeting some of those needs or, or maybe we have we don't have that functional skill set, um, we've built out some ways to complement that. So we have our founding partners, um, our other five partners that are still very much involved and ready and willing to jump in to support founders. We also have an operator council. These are 18 C-level executives. They're all women, CMO, CEO, CFO, chief product officer, 
CHRO. Um, they're all there. They're willing to coach. Um, they're willing to be design partners, um, or they'll just provide in the moment functional help. We had a founder who had a bit of a HR issue. I was able to text Annette on our operator council. She's like, give me 10 minutes. I will get on the phone um, with the founder and talk through that issue. And bringing that kind of experience to bear, we feel is invaluable. Um, from there, we have an operator network. We may need to work on our naming convention. These get a little confusing, but we have <laughs> our operator network, our, um, you can think of them, 25 tacticians. This is across 14 functions. Think recruiting, design, data science, um, growth. Uh, these are, in, for the most part, individuals we've worked with. They're highly vetted. We have a negotiated rate and we're like, you two should meet and then figure out your project and you're off to the races. And that's really all in service of helping founders move faster and focus on their superpower. Um, and then we're going to continue to evolve like programs, community. We just launched a founder program called F7 Anchor. These are seven building blocks to help founders move faster. Um, some of these are subsidized resources, things like a sourcer for recruiting um, or for hours um, with a growth expert. Um, so these are all things that like we're, you know, we're trying to do. We're still, you know, somewhat in our nascency as a firm. So continuing to try to build that out, but it's super important to us. I think it's, it's what keeps us up and wanting to make sure we're really delivering on that promise of helping founders be successful. Okay, so you had this $50 million fund you announced earlier this year, 2022, which is phenomenal. Um, when someone invests as an LP, typically they're looking at many more funds of yours in the future. So as you grow and expand, is it something where you see a, a ceiling on how big of a fund you want to have eventually? I know because people I've talked to previously, they're like, oh, at seed stage, like, we won't go much above like 125 million or 75 million or 100 because we like to play in this certain area, a certain space. Um, and I asked that because you mentioned all this operational help you're doing. But a lot of that, you need management fees to pay for a huge operational team if it's going to be in-house. I know you mentioned this kind of a advisors and council, but just curious about your plans on that as moving forward and looking like a strategy if, as a firm. For sure. So yeah, we're we're um, considering a lot of it. We we really do want to stay in that sort of pre-seed seed phase and and be known in the market as the firm that gets their companies to product market fit, right? Um, you know, all those executional resources, like, like we, uh, you know, if you, if you fail as a company, it should be for the right reasons and not because you didn't execute well, you know, if you're yeah. working with us. And so that's, that's kind of like what we want to be known for. Um, and so I, I see us definitely staying in this sort of pre-seed seed phase um, and building multiple funds on top of that. Um, but the form that might take could look different. Um, we're, you know, we're strategizing, we're thinking about um, uh, you know, obviously there's like the path of the traditional fund two, fund three, et cetera. Um, uh, but there are other forms that we might, we might try to innovate a little bit more on as well. Um, that are TBD is where, where, uh, uh, one of these things that we're debating in our, our regular oh. conversations. Oh, I get that. I think I always talk with Gail about stuff with Vitalize around like, what else could we do? What other models could we do? Like we have this angel community. We're like, oh, that's different. Like, great. How can we leverage yeah. that more? Can we do a different structure? Always kind of thinking through ways to innovate to like, especially get more funding to people who are under, underrepresented backgrounds. Um, one thing I'm curious about too, on the note of Gail, since, since she asked, what are the biggest surprises you've had since launching F7? She's curious. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think, um, you know, well, first of all, there's just been um, so many learnings and so many lessons. At, at one point, Joanna and I laughed 
partially to make ourselves feel better, but it was basically like, if we're not embarrassed by something we did last week, then we're simply not learning fast enough. Um, and so it's part of why we love the job as well. But I know I would say one of the, the biggest learning surprises, things we keep running through is, is just the context switching in venture is real. It's part of why I love this job. Um, it's also part of like what can um, give you an inferiority complex when you're trying to do so many different things at once and um, you're not sure if you're doing any of them really well. Um, it's hard to wear all the hats from sourcing, diligence, investing, fundraising, firm building, <laughs> developing founder programs, um, figuring out what we want to be when we grow up. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and then I think as you describe it, it is um, a bit different than, you know, we've been at companies, early operators, you don't have a lot of operating capital um, to scale and do all the things you want to do. So, you know, we're, um, uh, we're not constrained by our, by our imagination, but we are a bit constrained from a resource perspective. And that's definitely a reality of, um, of just, you know, how we operate, how we build the firm. I mean, I think for me, it's also like, you know, I guess it's not so much of a surprise, but more of one, maybe, maybe pleasantly so that it, this is like, it's exactly like building a startup in some ways, right? You're finding the perfect co-founder, you are um, uh, trying to operate with very little capital, you know, you're fundraising and hustling and trying to find ways to innovate and get to that product market fit. And so um, in, in many ways, it's, it's made me a lot more empathetic, uh, to founders and, and the, you know, the, the grind, uh, and, um, uh, and appreciative of it. Yeah. There's so many aspects of that, that is parallel to running a startup. I mean, even talking again with Gail more about that and like starting a company to help companies, basically, like it's just kind of what it is in some ways. And we had another question from Twitter. So I'm going to put it out there. So they had, uh, Philip was asking, are there any differences between venture investing this year, 2022, uh, and last year, 2021? If so, what are they? <laughs> there, there are a few differences. Different market, um, perhaps now? Different market. It's sort of fascinating. I mean, and it's interesting because on one hand, it, um, I think there's an argument that say it, it, it shouldn't be that different at the pre-seed and seed stage. Like what a great time to invest, quite honestly. Um, but I think there's a, a couple things that we're seeing. I mean, I, and it, I even think about sort of first close, even the first investment we made, we made that thing in like 36 hours. We spent our entire weekend diligencing the deal. We're like, we need to make a decision by Sunday if we want to get the remainder of the allocation. Like that's how fast Jeez. that thing moved. I mean, today and, and what we talked to a lot of our founders about to be like, it's not you like that time frame is significantly more extended. Um, I mean, you know, I would say that what might have been days of diligence is now weeks of diligence. Um, and that can be also sort of jarring for some founders that are still like, wait, you know, it, it took somebody else um, a couple of weeks to fundraise and now it's taking many months for others. Um, so first that diligence time frame, the time frame in general is really drawn out. But, you know, we're seeing some other behavior right now, which I'm I guess I'm secretly hoping is maybe a combination of summer plus the market because um, we're just seeing a lot of like um, uh, frozen is the um, is the word that I'm looking for. We're just seeing a lot of um, action not being taken, even at pre-seed and seed. 
um, talking to a lot of founders that um, they're getting lots of small checks, but um, the sort of the general thought is like no one wants to lead. Um, and then others don't want to invest until there is that lead. We're seeing much more focus and reliance on that. Um, you know, for us, that's interesting. We're happy to lead, co-lead, or our new favorite word is catalyze. Um, if it's a <laughs> if it's a larger round, we're not always the largest check, but we're very comfortable being conviction investors. Like we're in, tell everybody we're in and let us help you bring others around the table. Um, yeah. But it's a you know it's a challenging and, and different environment for founders even at pre-seed and seed, and then that's not even speaking to later rounds where I think the goalposts have moved. Um, so maybe you used to need a, a million dollars ARR for a Series A. You know some now are saying I want to see three or five. We're seeing some that would be getting ready to raise a Series A, not necessarily our portfolio, but even. We've talked to founders that went out to raise an A, and now they're going to do more of a seed, C plus. Um, and these are great yeah. businesses. It's not sort of the traditional definition of a bridge, um, but it's a, a sort of a sign that the goalposts have moved, um, particularly for Series A and B. There's a couple investments of yours I want to chat about. And going back to one thing you mentioned previously, so Cloud Eagle, a company we also invested in. Thank you, by the way. Uh, at Vitalize, uh, I think you had mentioned to us. I think you heard from Gail and stuff like it was like you mentioned one percent founder, right? You want to see a one percent top one percent founder, and Nitty's uh, one of the founders there. Take me through just how you found Cloud Eagle, why the conviction in Cloud Eagle, why you invested for people who have context around like, oh, what's a good example? What does this take? Like, I'm curious about that. Walk us through Cloud Eagle. Yeah, happy to. Um, so yeah, I think it, like even as you look through the lens of our table stake criteria, right? Like. Nitty and Prasanna, top 1% um, founders. We did a bunch of diligence on, on the founders and their prior performance. And that like certainly was the case. Lived experience, do they have it? Like they have decades of experience between the two of them at, at SaaS companies and, and, um, and kind of really understand the pain. Um, also really know, you know how to sell um, uh, out of SaaS companies. Um, you know, is, are they seeing, uh, are they seeing early engagement? They, you know, even though it was like pre-seed when we invested, there were, you know, four, four SaaS customers already, you know, a pipeline, people were seeing value from it. There was cost savings as a result of using the product. And just to take a step back, um, what Cloud Eagle does is it, it, you know, it consolidates your, all of your SaaS vendors. Um, you know, I think when I, when I was at my last company, we had like 76 different SaaS insane. vendors and <laughs> each of them had different owners and like nobody knew when the contracts were ending. And so they would continue to charge and charge and charge. And so, you know, how do you, uh, so what Cloud Eagle does is they consolidate all of that, um, ensure there's like one, um, source of truth for that information. Um, and then on top of that, help you find like the cost savings on, um, or, and, and give you different choices of which vendors to use um, so that you're able to ultimately, you know, save money as a business. And so um, we saw that actually happen when we were digging into their early customers. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and so we saw that, you know, early user product obsession. And is this, you know, a wedge into a big market? Well, B2B SaaS, absolutely, right? Um, and then cost savings, particularly, you know, in this environment right now, um, uh, it, it's, it's incredibly timely. So, um, uh, you know, we're definitely seeing like, you know, the, the cost savings wedge into a gigantic B2B SaaS market um, uh, uh, was a really good one. So that's, that's kind of how we looked at the deal. We obviously did a bunch of diligence on the market and, and competitors, but ultimately, um, you know, those four table stakes really dug into it and and uh, uh, decided to decide to invest. We're really excited about it. 
And then one more company I want to talk about is Done. I think you had mentioned uh, Ruthia before on a different podcast uh, or something. I, I want to dive deeper on that one. Take me through that as well in terms of Done, why this company, why the founders. Uh, love to hear more. Absolutely. Done was an interesting one. We were introduced to uh, Ruthia, the founder by Fiji Simo, who we've worked closely together with. Fiji's now the CEO at Instacart and is an angel investor in Done and um, had worked with Ruthia at Facebook. Um, and I think, uh, first of all, again, to describe, Done is a mental health managed marketplace. They're actually focused on ADHD um, in particular. Um, this is one I would say that was also personal for me. I have a child with ADHD. I've seen firsthand um, how hard it is to get um, support for ADHD and also um, uh, that it lends itself well for a telehealth model. Um, I think what was really striking when we met Ruthia and Dunn is that um, just her her performance, her revenue was unbelievably outsized. This was really not, you know, this looked more like Series B revenue than a seed stage <laughs> company. Um, and, uh, you know, continues to be on a tear. I mean, she has a superpower of growth without question. Um, and it's really been uh, amazing to watch and impressive to watch as she's really scaled the team and scaled um, the, the patients, the, the clinicians, the patients they've served and, and overall the revenue of the company. And so this was an interesting one for us. We actually made an off-cycle investment. Um, so we're introduced, started um, partnering with Ruthia and then you know, offered to make um, an investment um, between fundraises ultimately. With that one as well, you mentioned her uh, experience and ability to grow in terms of this, this company, which is insane growth. Well, two questions, I guess. One being, why do you think with that much revenue, they're raising a seed, uh, just in terms of has she struggled to raise before? I'm curious, or what just why that side of it, I guess, first go ahead. If yeah. You want. Oh, I think in that case, that was a nice, uh, validation of our model. Essentially, you know, that was an opportunity. I think where Rufia first time founder, um, uh, I don't know that she, she's really built, scaled, managed large teams before, and I think was really interested in getting some of that support around the table. I mean, it's also a reminder why um, operators and angels and like really getting that um, cohesive cap table and, and set of partners around the table is so important. And so I think that was probably more of the driver than capital. I think, of course, for us, we were very interested in, in making an investment and being a part of, <laughs> of that company and her journey. And so you know, that was ultimately like the vehicle and, and how we did that. But I think the um, probably, I don't want to speak for Ruthia, but I think that the driver was really around the partnership and our um, operational help um, as she was scaling so quickly. And then for the second question being just with her ability to grow to that revenue that fast and everything, I'm just curious on what you think was about her that uh, was able to do that. Because well, not everyone can, obviously. I'm just curious on any insights around her for people, you know, curious about that too. For sure. I mean, I think she just has that. She has that hustle. Um, Ruthia is very sort of like execution oriented. And so she's like, you know, she has that like sense of urgency. Um, she's like, you know, I, not to say that like work ethic equals results all the time. But like in yeah. this case, she's very like, you know, she's working all hours of the night. Like she has like her list of what she wants to get done and she finds a way to get it done. Um, you know, whether she's doing it herself or through delegation and that's, um, and that's, uh, enabled her ability to, to execute on the growth side. Um, and, and when we were talking to them, you know, they were also profitable so that that's, um, it wasn't like, 
out of control growth, it was very, we saw, we saw that she was able to get like the right unit economics as well. I love it. I'll have to have her on the podcast. <laughs> I'll have to ask her about more, more of it, get her, get her take too. And I know we're Absolutely. almost out of time. I'm, I'm just curious, uh, selfishly for us at Vitalize, because we invest in future of work. What are you excited about most in future of work uh, or it, verticals within that you're, you're, you're excited about? Just any last thoughts on kind of future of work, uh, just so I can do my own research. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a category. Obviously, we also care a lot about, um, I mean, I think I mentioned it earlier, just really driven by like the dramatic changes we're seeing in work, um, making a, a lot of investments around flexible work, gig economy, um, companies like WorkWild, Jira just recently closed her Series A. That's a platform for hourly workers um, to be able to uh, put together a reliable schedule and ultimately a better quality of life for themselves and their families while also having allowing employers to dial up or dial down the hourly resources they need. Um, another company such as Aria that we just invested in that's really about building um, compensation for for flexible workers and gig workers. And so I think, um, you know, this is an area where there's just, we're going to continue to see a rise in that employer-employee relationship and a different relationship. And we still need a lot of infrastructure and changes in how we do business. Um, so that's a lot of what we look at. Um, you know, we also look at things like automation um, uh, and, um, and, and other solutions, I think, in the in the overall future of work. What am I missing, Joanna? Yeah, I think we essentially we think about like the second or third order effects of the trends that we we all know are already happening, right? So like we know gig is not going away. We know flexible work is not going away. Um, and so what are the tools and infrastructure that's needed to enable that? And that's what we're we're digging into um, a lot more. Yeah, I love that. I love like, like the picks and shovels businesses that support all the other things happening. You know, this gold rush and then who's selling the picks and shovels is also yeah. just curious. And who are the platforms within that, uh, which we think about as well. Uh, I know we're almost out of time. So where is the best place to learn more about F7 and also connect with both of you? Absolutely. Well, um, you can find us uh, either hello at f7ventures.com or Kelly at or Joanna at. Um, and uh, I'm on Twitter, as we've established. <laughs> Joanna is not on Twitter. <laughs> um, but, That's a good fight, know, Joanna. <laughs> yes, exactly. Too many spam accounts. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. And thanks for having us. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to Vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at VitalizeVC, or you can follow me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.